0: Hello and welcome to It's a Scary Life. <laughs> I'm your host, Melody, and this is my wonderful co-host Ellen.
1: Hello, everybody.
0: Uh, and we are here with the Board and Mortars. Hell
1: yeah. Part two. I have been waiting over a month. Yes. There has been a month between recordings, and I am ready. <laughs> Melody, what's happening? What's going on? <laughs>
0: I'm going to have to disappoint you a little bit. Um, so as we record in our lovely blanket fort, hopefully, oh, yes. to help our sound. Um,
1: it's very nice and cozy.
0: It's cute. It's nice and warm. Yeah. Uh, we do have a little bit of things to discuss before we jump back into where we were. Okay. <laughs> so I do want to start off giving credit to a couple of my sources for the Borden Mortars part one and two. The Lizzie Borden podcast was a great listen and had tons of wonderful information. If the Lizzie Borden podcast didn't already exist, I may have saved this one for like an offshoot mini series from this pod. But that podcast already exists and they did a great job and people should listen.
1: So after today, I'm free to listen to it?
0: Ex- absolutely. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. And then um, that podcast podcast had led me to finding the book, I found some of the best information for the case. Mm -hmm. The Borden Murders by Sarah Miller has been an amazing source for research for this coverage. Um, I first heard about the book on Lizzie Borden podcast, I got repetitive there. Um, And I learned that she spent time in Fall River with historians to write the book, which is a layer of research I find a lot of people skip in writing books about Lizzie Borden, I have found. Yeah, a lot of people rely on the newspapers of the time, which are just filled with mass amounts of misinformation, which is why you have tons of books with all kinds of theories about what happened on August 4th, 1892. Many things newspapers got wrong were rumors about the Borden Will cutting out Lizzie, which there was never Will drafted by Andrew in his lifetime. Emma and Lizzie having a bitter relationship with their father was a newspaper fabrication. And many accusations of family members being involved with a crime with Lizzie were all just newspaper speculation trying to sell papers. Wow. But Sarah Miller's book is written at an elementary school level, so it's very accessible. And it reads like a friend telling you a story rather than an academic showing off their knowledge um, so I re- highly recommend reading the book because I have been able to give a summary of the details given in that book and other resources such as American Heritage and uh, Smithsonian Magazine. It's just diving deeper into it is so worth the juicy details, so worth it. And thank you for chi- to uh, Chicago Public Library for having Ooh. an ebook of that makes my life a little easier. So I do want to address some language. While editing part one, I heard myself speak in a way that I want to remain conscious of and refrain from using these words lightly. I call it Lizzie psychopath, and I want you, our listeners, to understand that when I call it killer, a psychopath, or sociopath. Although I am not a trained professional, I do take into account what I have learned from trained professionals. I do believe she killed her parents and managed to generally maintain an image of stoicism after the fact. She was the only person who had opportunity and motive. If she hadn't done it herself, then she at least had someone commit the murders for her and hid them in the house until they could make a safe getaway. There's a solid two hours between Abby and Andrew's Killings where a killer would have to be harbored in the home.
1: So she could have paid someone off?
0: It's possible, but there's oh, no proof. So, okay. <laughs> Very juicy. Yeah. Lizzie is known for stubbornness and arrogance as well as a temper. And let's not forget that she was born into money. Something that isn't necessarily an antisocial trait but can lend to more antisocial behaviors as it's been found in studies that the more money someone has, the less empathy they tend to have. This being more so if they are born into that money. Meaning that a lot of the time for a rich kid to have empathy, their parents or nannies have to deliberately raise them that way. Note, I did not say teachers. Although teachers should remain good examples for empathy, raising your children is your job. And teaching empathy starts from the moment they come out of the womb, not when they start school. Not the teacher's job.
1: I work in childcare, so... Yeah.
0: Um, Unless they are going into daycare at, like, eight weeks. Not the teacher's job.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, then there are also childcare professionals who are more focused on the social-emotional learning, whereas teachers have about a thousand things that they need to focus on per student.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So if you would like an excellent resource for videos to learn about mental uh, disorders and the effects that they have on the people living with them, I do suggest MedCircle. Not a sponsor. Uh, I just love <laughs> Yes, please sponsor us, MedCircle. But I just love them. They're one of the only dot-coms outside of psychology today that I trust, because they only speak with licensed professionals who work directly with what they're discussing in the videos. Outside of that, my main resources are health.harvard.edu, medline.gov, or medlineplus.gov, nhs.uk, and mayoclinic.org. So whenever I say I'm quoting psychological experts, I'm never quoting a BuzzFeed article like your coworker Shannon, I'm quoting actual experts.
1: Who's Shannon? What did she do to you, Melody?
0: It was the first name that came to mind when I wrote that. It's just, it's legitimately just what came out.
1: Okay, that's fair. I, the Shannons I've known have been lovely. I don't know how their, you know, information gets to them, but you know.
0: It was, a, it was just what came to mind when I wrote it. Um. So, catching up to, where are we?
1: So, she, okay, so, she done did it. <laughs> Um, the dad was found in, like, the drawing room, living room?
0: Sitting room. Sitting
1: room. Excuse me. Yes. Um, with just a big old chunk of his head, uh, of, like, his brain and gross. A lot of it, all of it to his face. Um, and then you go upstairs into the, well, like, the master bedroom, master suite, and there Guest room. Guest room. Pardon me. Ooh, that's kind of a secondary salt cat greta is gracing us with her presence right next to my mic
0: good kitty yes don't knock down that water
1: and we find abigail fully fucking dead mm-hmm. um part of her like like part the skin that attached to her ear and then her ear was like flapping in not flapping in the wind but like was detached right yeah and yeah. she had like 14 wax to one side and four to the other and just gruesome as fuck, Lizzie goes to her room. The doctor gives her, like, a solid aspirin. And Lizzie changes into a pink and white and red dress in- with no no black whatsoever. Not even, like, a lavender or purple, as would be appropriate for, like, half morning. And, you know, you would expect people to have just something in there that was purple. And they questioned her, and the police are pretty damn sure she did it. Yeah?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So when we left off last time... um, the bodies of Andrew and Abby Borden had been found brutally murdered in the city room and guest room of their home. Lizzie, the younger of their daughters, was home at the time, as well as the maid, Bridget Sullivan. Lizzie claimed to be in the barn during the murder, and Bridget had been upstairs taking a nap in between her morning chores and preparing dinner, which, again, in this era is lunch and supper is dinner. Just Victorians. They're weird. Technically, we're the weird ones because we're the ones who changed it.
1: Yeah, but I like being mean to the Victorians. Fair. It's
0: nice. So, as police investigated and questioned Lizzie, they started seeing holes in her story and becoming suspicious of her behavior. Lizzie wasn't crying nor letting down any walls. She didn't seem concerned about the deaths of her parents, much when being questioned by police. She even changed her dress after learning about the deaths and changed into a red and white dance. Dre- red and white dress. Red and white dance. Why was I going to say that? So all this behavior together not only seemed extremely odd, but cold to them. So after this first day of investigating, a local shop owner, Eli Bentz, came to the police saying he believes Lizzie Borden had been in his shop trying to buy prussic acid the day before the murders. And again, prussic acid is hydrogen cyanide. And that can only be brought with certain permits. She um, did have a
1: seal skin coat. She could have, she could have been using it for, but like...
0: The people who are able to buy it are the people who actually run a business uh, doing things like that, like, okay. which is why you need a specific permit. Mm-hmm. It is a dangerous enough um, substance. Yeah. Even in the Victorian era, it's considered too dangerous for the home.
1: Which, in the Victorian era, is really saying something.
0: Takes a lot. I
1: think you could bring live dynamite into your home and like juggle it. Basically. And it would be legal.
0: It was normal. Yeah. There's a reason the atoms are written the way they are.
1: Oh also, counterpoint. One of one of uh Lizzie's friends, or I guess we should say acquaintances, said Lizzie couldn't have committed the murders because if she had, she would have told us already. Yeah. Which what a great friend. Just like no listen, she would have told us. She would be brave. She would've let us know.
0: So police then brought Eli Bence to the Borden home to listen and look into the home and was he was able to positively identify Lizzie as the woman who tried to buy the prussic acid from him. So let's discuss a little bit of Victorian mourning dress. Yes! Oh no. My yes! Lizzie's red and white dress was not only an inappropriate choice of attire because of the expectation to wear black in mourning. The Victorians had a lot of rules when it came to mourning attire, and there are levels of mourning. After Prince Albert's death, the Victorian rules for mourning attire became extremely strict because in this era, the queen still sets the standard for everything and is not a laughingstock who fucked her cousin and then was worried about a child who was well, one okay. quarter black being too dark. Okay, no, but Victoria did fuck her. She did, but she didn't complain about black people entering the family. She was... She was definitely racist. Was I'm not gonna...
1: Colonial monarch melody. Yeah, she's
0: a monster.
1: She said some shit about black people. <laughs> it might not be recorded. It probably is.
0: But in that era, she was not a laughing stock for it. Nowadays, with Elizabeth, she is. Uh, there are a lot of standards to Victorian mourning attire, and I'm going to do my best to summarize. Children had it the easiest in the standards for mourning. They were expected to wear their black church clothes to the funeral. And then after that, they were free from being held in mourning, which in fairness, yeah, let the kids be kids. So from here, we have standards of full mourning and half mourning. Full mourning attire is all black for everyone, but from there, it differs by gender, age and relation to who had died. I'll be covering the standards for widowers as they are the same for a spinster daughter. Every widower was expected to be in full mourning one year and half mourning for the following two years. Men generally had an easy time with this attire. They would wear a black suit with black gloves, hatband, and cravat in full mourning. In half mourning, they could have a different color cravat and hatband, but would maintain their black gloves. And the rules for when they were allowed to transition were more flexible for them, especially if they had young children who needed a mother, and the father needed to court some women to find one for them. It was considered inappropriate to be still physically in mourning while in courtship which is part of the reason why Victoria never left mourning technically for most of her life after Prince Albert died she was in half mourning so full mourning attire for women involved a lot of black crepe fabric uh crepe fabric is a lightweight fabric that is typically crinkled or crimped the crimping would look similar to pleating like a schoolgirl skirt for people who don't have a large fashion vocabulary um crepe was chosen because it's an unflashy fabric and it didn't look good matched with flashier fabrics like satin or silk women were expected to wear black veil at least until the funeral of their spouse the neck of the dreck had to come all the way up to the collarbone and often cover the neck fully younger marriageable daughters might have a keyhole at the top of the dress in a bustle to signal their availability spinster daughters like the widow could not have a bustle or a flirty neckline, and were often expected to have their necks covered completely, as was popular with elderly widows. Half-mourning attire allows some silks and satins to be worn, and for the trims of the dress along the sleeves and necklines to be white, lavender, or sometimes a soft pink or blue. So when Lizzie changes into a red and white number, when she's expected to wear a veil, And full black, unflashy ensemble, that is controversial. And throughout the investigation and trial, newspaper noted that Lizzie would be in black but was never seen in full mourning. So looking at some of the forensics that we have at this point in time. And forensics in 1892 is a very new concept. I mean, at least if it were the 40s, they could figure out, like, the blood type.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Listen, people have been getting away with murder for a long time.
0: Very long. I mean, Forensics fixed that in a lot of ways. So there was not a lot that could be tested. The stomachs and milk were sent for examination at Harvard University, determined time of death, and whether or not the Bordens were poisoned. We'll get there. Howdy. <laughs> Yay. The point of this is that I tangle a carrot in front of you the whole time. Uh, <laughs> a month I've waited. So something else they were able to do in this time period was look at the coagulation of blood to help determine time of death. So coagulation is how much is thickened and dried. The blood surrounding Abby was an advanced stage of coagulation, as if she had been sitting there a minimum of an hour before being found. Whereas Andrew's blood was still dripping. This indicates that Abby was not only killed first, but at least an hour prior. Their stomachs also show evidence of a difference in time of death. Now, I will say stomach evidence is complicated because digestion does depend on many factors. And in modern times, this evidence should really only hold a tiny amount of weight. So Abby's food was not digested as much as Andrew's. And since they knew they had breakfast together and Andrew was having a nap before dinner, And he hadn't eaten again to throw off the timing. Her food indicated that she died at least an hour and a half before Andrew. Which, if we think about when Abby went to the guest room to straighten up around 9 o'clock. And then Andrew being found around 11.15 fits perfectly. So, in the days following the murder of uh, Andrew and Abby Borden, there were police officers outside the homes at all times and multiple sweeps looking for clues as to what happened on that fateful Thursday. Nothing had been found in the home during their sweeps, checking every room, every dress, and and every cranny of the Borden home other than the hatchets found in their first sweep. Now, the sisters Emma and Lizzie, Bridget the maid, and Lizzie's friend Alice Russell were not just allowed to stay in the Borden home during this time, Mm -hmm. but were required by police to stay there so they couldn't like run off i'm not sure what they thought they were going to find after those women were left in the house alone overnight but okay police also harassed and detained multiple portuguese and ashkenazi jews questioning them about their whereabouts because people just love to jump to xenophobia people just love that xenophobia must be an outsider
1: I, i mean it couldn't be the daughter of the richest man in town.
0: I mean, he's not quite the richest.
1: Okay. It couldn't be the daughter of a rich man, Melody. You know, you <laughs> She's know, so dainty
0: and Victorian.
1: Well, you know, these types of people don't commit crimes. Only those people do.
0: She's just a dear girl. She needs a fainting couch, not a jail cell.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you can have a little fainting couch in your jail cell. That'd be kind of fun.
0: That'd be kind of fun, actually. Yeah, yeah. that'd be cute be more comfortable than sleeping on like what is it metal i, I don't know at this point in time probably. <laughs> anywho so this led the police to the inquest portion of the investigation which means bringing people into court before a judge to further questioning this is done in cases where there's a lot of suspicion around a death and not a lot of information about either whether the death was murder such as suggest poisonings or the killer is unclear Though, at this point, they do have enough evidence to have a warrant for Lizzie's arrest, which they issue from a judge and have on hand during this time. Nice. This inquest was led by District Attorney Knowlton, a former governor of Massachusetts. Summons were sent to the Borden home for people one by one. Bridget, who had tried to leave the Borden home because she was distraught and hadn't slept through the murders, thought she was being arrested when her summons for questioning had come in. I know. Poor thing.
1: What did
0: they also call her? Maggie? Maggie. Yeah, I don't get it, but Maggie. So the transcript for Lizzie's questioning before the judge has been lost with time. The only copy is a reprinted excerpt from the New Bedford Evening Standard, which may have altered Lizzie's words, considering many reprints of the copy in the Evening Standard were altered to make Lizzie seem more innocent or guilty. Journalism without integrity, what does that look like?
1: Ooh, I
0: love (laughs) it. How the newspapers portray people is not always the accurate story.
1: Okay, but like, so what's up with the stomachs?
0: What we do know is that her testimony does nothing to aid her. Lizzie was evasive and often contradicted herself, speaking in a circular manner, as many politicians do. She gave as little information to the DA per question as she could. Lizzie said she could not speak as to how much money her father had to his name. She avoided questions about her relationship with Abby. Then the questioning about the day of the murder began. Lizzie's floodgates opened.
1: (laughs) Interesting.
0: Clear sign of guilt, in my opinion, just looking at true crime as much as I do. When someone's tight-lipped for a long time and then you get to the murder and they're like, oh, let me tell you everything. It's because they need their lies to come out. (laughs) Nice. So she gave a very detailed recount of that morning including how she had felt the day before, her breakfast, everyone's chores that they were getting done, and when her father had left for work. D.A. Knowlton was grateful for the detailed account here because at this point, he knew the forensics showed that Abby had been killed before Andrew, and Lizzie had only a given an alibi for Andrew in this story. Lizzie even unwittingly contradicted testimony given by Bridget on the morning of the murders.
1: Oh, so they didn't get to hear each other's testimony? Yes,
0: in an inquest testimony... Um, nobody gets to hear anyone else's testimony. That's oh, only during uh, actual trial.
1: Okay, that's wonderful. However, if you know there's going to be an inquest and you've got a maid, then you got to make sure your stories. Are- I'm just, saying. <laughs> if you're if you're in the house together, you gotta just just a, li- a little bit of attention to detail and some foresight would be greatly appreciated. <laughs> I already know she didn't go to jail. Like yeah.
0: So you see in Bridget's earlier testimony about the morning of the murders, she says that while she was washing the windows inside the sitting room, she heard Mr. Borden struggle with the front door. Now, the front door had three locks on it. One that was locked at all times, and two that were extra security for when they went to bed at night. The odd thing was that on this morning, all three were locked instead of one, and Bridget had to let Mr. Borden into the home. While she did this, she could hear Lizzie at the top of the stairs laughing. Lizzie, in her testimony, states that this is when she is sitting in the kitchen and reading the Harper's Magazine while waiting for her irons to heat. Uh. After further questioning, Lizzie changes her story that she was bringing clothing up when her father got home. The DA felt he had Lizzie right in his crosshairs now. At this point, many Lizzie supporters will talk about how Dr. Bowen, after the day of the murders, has had Lizzie on a regimen of 16 milligrams of morphine to explain away all of the contradictions.
1: Oh, my God. Is she fully lost <laughs> in the sauce?
0: But, like, I feel that is just as easily used as an argument as to why she can't remember her lies. Sure. So, you know, choose for yourself what you want to believe.
1: You can be lost in the sauce and try and lie and do it badly. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Meth heads do it all the time.
1: All right. You ever watch a
0: meth head lie? It's amazing. (laughs) Anywho.
1: (laughs) Melody, you want to share with the class?
0: (laughs) (laughs) The inquest took three days, (laughs) spanning over (laughs) August. I grew up in fucking Castaic. What do you want?
1: I grew up in fucking Missouri. I just knew not to talk to the meth heads.
0: There wasn't always a way to avoid that. (laughs) Sometimes it's just the next door neighbor to somebody. Like...
1: Hey, we had meth heads living in the back. Well, I don't know if they were actually doing the meth, but they were sure making it.
0: Oh, damn.
1: Yeah. Nothing blew up.
0: Ugh. I don't trust their filtration. Nope. Which means they were poisoning the whole block. The inquest took three days, spanning over August 8th through 11th, and by the end of them, District Attorney Knowlton felt confident that Lizzie Borden was responsible for the murders of Andrew and Abby Borden.
1: Good. Yeah. Did she ever spend a night in jail
0: or like... Oh yeah, we're getting there.
1: Mm, A consequence.
0: So on August 11th, as the inquest testimony was being taken, metal examiner Dr. Dolan, if we remember, he was the guy who was just strolling down the block, saw a commotion, was like stumbled on the murder scene, basically. He was performing the autopsy. It had been long enough that the skin was far too decomposed to get any information from the tissue. But it was determined that Andrew Borden had not died from the blows to his face, though he definitely would have bled out from those ones.
1: There, what did he. So was he awake? Was he like. <laughs> could he feel them?
0: It's possible. It depends on whether or not they were before the four blows to his temple, mm-hmm. which crushed the skull and pushed bone fragments into his brain, oh which was the cause of death.
1: So fucked up.
0: So bad. Fuck. Just disgusting. I hate that I smile while saying that, but it's so gross. (laughs) uh, (laughs) uh, (laughs) Melody's having a great time. I think it's so fascinating at the same time. I'm weird. Uh, Hold on. On Abby Borden, he finds a blow to her back just below the neck that hadn't been noticed before. He shaves her head to get a full picture of her injuries. And I'm going to use a quote from Sarah Miller's The Borden Murders to describe them. At the crown of her skull, the skin and bone was slashed on a broad gap shaped like the number seven. And this was not the worst of it. Fourteen parallel blows to the right side of her skull had obliterated the bone behind Abby Borden's right ear. What? Leaving a hole measuring four and a half by five and a quarter inches. At the end of the autopsies, Dr. Dolan did something unusual. He removed both heads to be examined, and used as evidence in the trial for whoever committed the crime. It seems so messed up, but Aww. like, it's so necessary for evidence.
1: No, I get, I get the removal of the heads. I mean, it's 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 fucked, but like, oh my Ugh. god, obliterated.
0: She obliterated these people.
1: Was she like a sporty person, like, or did she just have some time to kill? <laughs>
0: I mean, she was at least She was handy. She would do chores around the house and stuff. So she wasn't like a helpless lady.
1: Right. I'm just like, that kind of seems like someone who's like, yeah, I can swim the English Channel. Yeah, I can also like obliterate someone's skull.
0: I don't think Lizzie would ever swim the English Channel. And I don't think she would ever say that she would. No, Um, I know. But I'm
1: just saying like a sporty type, it would would, be like, okay, that tracks.
0: No, she just likes animals. People, she really I mean, liked it. pigeons she kept pigeons for a while
1: melody don't make me like her again. <laughs> we can't do this
0: so look at a picture of her she's actually quite beautiful
1: i mean sure but that has nothing to do with her like ability to commit murder truth i mean you know the popular kids in school who are just like very pretty but also like just dead inside oh yeah and find joy in, in others pain yeah sure they're pretty but like, if you find out that one of them like raises pigeons, you're gonna be like, "Aw, okay." Yes. Yeah, you're not the worst. I at
0: least saw TV shows and stuff about that. That wasn't really how my schools functioned. We were super chill, except for, you know who.
1: Well.
0: <laughs> I'm not naming him on the podcast. We don't need to talk no. about it. This he person's very. Some yeah, this person's very famous. I don't need to start talking about them. So with the warrant already done for Lizzie's arrest and the inquest testimony finished. Things were not just looking in Lizzie's favor. District Attorney Knowlton set out for the arrest of Lizzie for the murders of Andrew and Abby Borden. Marshall Hilliard was sent to the Borden house to collect her. Lizzie stood with her head held high and proud, but was trembling when brought out to the carriage to bring her to Taunton Jail in New Bedford. Hell yeah! Um, and New Bedford is the neighboring town to Fall River or neighboring city. Okay. Um, they're the ones with a proper jail. So Marshall Hilliard decided to set her up in the matron's apartment instead of her, the cell that they prepared for her because no! of how much she trembled. No! Um, and okay. once, once in the matron's quarters, Lizzie was looked after by Matron Russell, a woman who was like the matron mom, Mama Morton.
1: Oh, fuck yeah.
0: Of this um, particular jail and looked after all the lady prisoners. She was in charge of all the other matrons as well. And Lizzie grows a strong relationship with Matron Russell from day one. As Lizzie and the Matron are alone for a moment, Lizzie immediately loses some of her composure and sobs openly. As Lizzie goes through her arraignment, preliminary hearings, grand tr- jury, and trial, Matron Russell seems to become one of her closest confidants. Yeah. So, uh, Lizzie's arraignment, she is committed without bail, Meaning that she has no hope of seeing the outside world again unless she gets a not guilty at trial. As Lizzie remained and in Taunton jail, it became a very popular spot for people to gather to try and catch a glimpse of the murderess.
1: Oh, people are people.
0: I love people. I'm not this type of creep, but like I get it. Well also, I, do. I mean,
1: you're better off going to the hanging itself than like trying to catch a glimpse through a window. <laughs>
0: If there is a hanging, but women even showed up to the jail once to attend their Sunday services in hopes of attending service alongside the infamous (laughs) Lizzie (laughs) Borden.
1: Oh, I fucking love people. (laughs) This is delightful.
0: Humans are hilarious. What what (laughs) weirdos.
1: God bless you.
0: So Lizzie's admirers weren't limited to people who wanted her fame. Matron Wright, another matron at the jail, knew Lizzie since she was a young girl and would play with her daughter, Isabel. The matron gave Lizzie many things to make her stay easier when she was moved to a cell. Oh. Um, So Matron Wright lent Lizzie a big feather pillow, a rocking chair, a stool, a white bedspread, and pillow slip.
1: You know, those are all things that reasonably people should have in their cells. Yeah. So I'm not too mad. I'm just mad that nobody else got them.
0: Right. And then she also gave her gifts of flowers and fruit. In fact, throughout Lizzie's entire stay in jail, Emma, her sister Emma and many friends showered her with gifts of books, flowers, fruits and chocolates Aww. and pastries.
1: It's so fucked. I love <laughs> it. Only because it's her sister and friends. When it's the matrons, like... It's a little weird. Fuck off. It's, it's a lot of favor. Right. But like... Yeah.
0: Um, Lizzie even had her meals delivered from the Borden home.
1: Okay, now I am back squarely on... No. No. You can have your extra fruit and chocolate and whatever that your sister, like, sneaks in for you. But fuck you. You gotta eat the slop. Yeah. Eat your fucking gruel.
0: Eat your fortified oatmeal.
1: Hell yeah. Oh, it was fortified? Nice.
0: Probably. They didn't want them dying in prison in this era. Oh, I would... They're more valuable in convict lease.
1: Oh, that's true. You don't want them getting scurvy too. So
0: while in jail, Lizzie had to have her dresses refitted for her trial, as the ones she had now were too tight because of Lizzie's gifts, eating basically being the only thing she could do after dark because she was never provided candles, and a lack of adequate exercise in jail since she wasn't doing her normal steps that she would do doing chores around the house. So...
1: I'm just saying, she could be... I don't know, they should have made her scrub some floors.
0: <laughs> I mean, true. Paid her That's,
1: minimum wage, but like, you know.
0: Scrub some floors, it's good exercise. I mean, it's Also, it gets the floor clean.
1: clean. I'm just saying that like, it sounds like she was bored. How people stop being bored? chores.
0: Yeah, give them stuff to do. As the legal process moved forward in the preliminary hearings... District Attorney Knowlton led with questioning witnesses establishing the timeline of the day of the murder to build his case against Lizzie. Which, as more testimony against Lizzie came in, was only getting stronger.
1: Hell yeah. What kind of
0: testimony? During these hearings, Lizzie let down her composure once while in the hallways of the courthouse with her sister Emma. The exchange was printed in the New Bedford Evening Standard under the headline, The Two Sisters Quarreled in Fall River Police Station. Okay,
1: that's fucked up. That's fucked up. You call for freedom of the press. <laughs> but that doesn't mean you have to be an asshole about it.
0: Um. Okay, tell me about the argument. They, 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 really they make a lot of money this way. Tabloids do this still. So the exchange, as printed, said, You gave me away, Emma, didn't you? No, Lizzie. I only told Mr. Jennings what I thought he ought to know for your defense. That is false, and I know it. But remember, I will never give one inch. Never! Lizzie... Lizzie, I think you gave more than an inch with this outburst.
1: I love them both. Right. What a what a champ. Oh my <laughs> god. Love those two. Can't wait for them to be creepy old ladies at the end of the lane together. Oh. You shouldn't murder people though. No. There are better ways to be creepy old ladies. I can't <laughs> have an herb garden and just be grumpy to everyone except small children. Maybe even some small children. Maybe
0: move into a hut with uh chicken legs at the bottom and uh Yeah just snatch up bad kids and eat them
1: i don't want to eat kids you know what they eat these days that's true plus i'd feel that like yeah i want to be a grumpy old lady not like (laughs) baba yaga (laughs) i don't listen baba yagas have a lot of pressure on them to perform and like yeah i'd rather just have like a regular cottage with some chickens nice like is the house gonna lay an egg how big is it gonna be and how fast am i gonna need to use it these are considerations
0: One important testimony from the preliminary hearing is that of Professor Wood of Harvard University. He was the one who examined the contents of the Borden's stomachs, the milk, and the hatchets found by the police. He found that both stomachs showed no sign of any recent poisoning. Mr. Borden's stomachs' contents were in a further stage of digestion than Mrs. Borden's, correlating with the difference in time of death that Mr. Dolan established from the type of blood. The hatchet was more unhelpful once examined. Some hair had been found on the hatchet that had determined to be bovine, and there was no trace of any blood.
1: Oh, they don't have fingerprint reliably now? No. Ah.
0: It'll be a few more decades for that, and even now it's not reliable.
1: I know it's not fully reliable, <laughs> but, you know, you can, you can get a good start.
0: Like, you have to get a really good biometric...
1: And even though they have, there has been, like, a case or two where it turns out that people have identical things, finger- which is so cool. I mean, not that someone got falsely accused of a crime.
0: It's very rare, though.
1: I know, but, like, don't you want to meet your fingerprint buddy?
0: No. I just hope they don't commit crimes.
1: I mean, I want to meet mine in, like, in a way where neither of us are in trouble. Okay. I don't know how that happens, but fingerprint I... buddy, if you're out there.
0: The only blood found on anything collected was a small bit on the bottom of the dress collected from Lizzie that was about the size of a grain of rice.
1: Uh
0: Now, something that is important to note is that the week of the murders, Lizzie was menstruating.
1: Oh. Well, how did it get down? I mean, I have bled a few times in my life.
0: Not using literal rags.
1: I mean, I've been on some road trips where I didn't have correct (laughs) menstrual products. How... I mean, I understand if it's on the inside. I understand. How do you only get a rain of rice-sized blood on the bottom of your skirt? That it is... drips. I don't know. Yeah, but then you should see the drip. It, it
0: could have come from anywhere.
1: <laughs> was it on, like, an inner skirt or an outer skirt? Okay. No clue. Okay.
0: It's just on a skirt. And so Lizzie's lawyer Jennings was able to make his case before the court during these hearings, as is traditional and preliminary hearings. He focused on how the barn had been burgled on three separate occasions without being without people seeing anyone coming and going and how there are always strange people lurking about seen by neighbors on the street which fuck you man yeah fuck you. it's also a main street through fall river so <laughs> people are just gonna be walking down that street a lot he also made many emotional pleas talking about how lizzie has had to be medicated from the distress of the murders since finding her dear father's body he claimed she was being held merely on incriminating circumstances, or in other words, motive and opportunity.
1: I mean, <laughs> that's you. I mean, what, what else do you need? Means, motive, opportunity? Mm-hmm. That's two out of them.
0: And she's the only one with the means. It's, um, he did fail to offer up how someone would have been able to move about the house unnoticed for two hours, which DA Knowlton jumped on during his closing statements during this hearing. And at the end of the preliminary hearing, the judge favored toward the DA and proceeded with the trial. Hell yeah. Like the inquest testimony, the official record of Lindsay Borden's grand jury has been lost to time.
1: How the fuck?
0: Fires. Mm -hmm. It gets mixed in with things. Shit's old. And people, honestly, someone may have actually swiped it.
1: Okay, but then it's their job to tell us and, like, sell copies. (laughs) If you're out there, hit us up.
0: It's more about having the only thing, but okay.
1: I know, but then you give it to a museum and then you get like a tax write-off.
0: Except that you're admitting a crime no, by having it.
1: It's been 130 years, <laughs> Melody.
0: It's lost to time at this point, Ellen. No one has it. If someone has it, it hasn't been seen in a very long time. What we do know is this. A 21-man jury convened between November 7th and 21st to hear several cases, including the Lizzie Borden trial. Testimonies had been taken just like in the previous hearings. When the jury finished proceedings on November 21st, they took no action on the case. No indictment, no release of the prisoner. On December 1st, 1892, the grand jury reconvened to call back one witness, Alice Russell. It is during this questioning that Alice Russell reveals an important part of testimony. The Sunday after the murder, she was in the kitchen when Lizzie came in with a dress covered in something Lizzie said was paint. She stated that Lizzie was ripping up the dress, saving the untainted parts of fabric for rags, and burning the stained portions on the stove. Burning? Very unusual. Yeah. This testimony forever broke her ties with Lizzie. The next day, Lizzie Borden was indicted for the murders of Andrew and Abby Borden in a vote of 20 to 1. Now, the trial of Lizzie Borden began June 5, 1893 with jury selection around 150 men were called on the jury and by the end of the day they were able to proceed with the 12 men who would the 12 men who would hear the trial every day of the trial the courthouse was filled to the brim with reporters and onlookers who wanted to hear all the juicy details which did not help that it was already a warm summer giving 90 degree temperatures in the mornings oh
1: fuck that
0: and this is the 1890s there's no electricity they just crack open a window and hope for a breeze
1: Everybody just fanning themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, this resulted in Lizzie fainting during one day of the trial. And the trial having to be put on recess after that till the next day. Which, fair?
1: I mean, fair, but also, like, I've seen Chicago. Did she faint or did she faint?
0: I mean, Fall River is a river town. They're right on the water. It's New England. It's highly humid she probably fucking fainted. Between emotional stress and the heat, she fainted. Okay, <laughs> I take it back, mostly. Now, it should be noted that lawyer Jennings managed to get to judge to throw out inquest testimony, <gasps> preliminary hearings, what? and the entire testimony of Eli Benz throughout the process of this trial. What
1: the fuck?
0: The, when D.A. Knowlton brought one of these topics up, Lawyer Jennings objected and successfully argued to have the evidence seen as inadmissible.
1: What is Jennings' hourly (laughs) rate? That shit's golden.
0: Man's a shark. This left the prosecution with having to prove simply means, motive, and opportunity by refuting Lizzie's story alone. Fucking difficult. This is almost as bad as the fucking glove in the OJ trial. I mean, I will say, Cochran was a brilliant lawyer. He was just such a dick at the same time. Ugh. In fairness, not all lawyers, but a lot. In fairness, I am unsure if it was OJ. It may have been his son. Oh, but more on damn. that in another episode. Yeah, I know a lot about it. So there are some important bits of testimony that we get from the trial. Officer Malley who inspected um, a lot of the house on the first day of the murders and had originally questioned Lizzie and everything. He was one of the officers who did. He had noted that he didn't see any marks of disturbance in the barn loft when he went eye level with it before walking up there. And then when he had gone down after inspecting it, he could see a disturbance in the dust, which means someone was not up there. There was no one up there. Alice Russell is once again brought to the stand to talk about the dress Lizzie burned in front of her. Bridget gave testimony on her movements that day. And people who had seen Andrew about town were called to establish when Andrew had gotten home. The handleless hatchet had been called into question because of its lack of real evidence on it, as was the lack of blood seen on Lizzie the day of the murders, which makes sense. Both of these murders would produce blood spatter. Yeah. Did she have enough time to clean up? Big question. You can put on an apron. A lot of Victorian dresses also are basically like an overcoat yeah, where it overcoat fastens back, in yeah. back and you can just unfasten it and it slides right off. Yeah. So it could so have been one of those dresses. It could. So lawyer Jennings even called into question the ability of a woman to be able to wield a hatchet. <laughs> sir? Stating that we are too dainty and too sweet listen, to be able to wield, wield a body hatchet.
1: Strength, but fuck you, sir. Yeah.
0: Hatchets are not heavy.
1: I mean, I know why he was doing it. I know that like listen, sometimes you got to use sexism to your advantage. Absolutely. That being said, Fuck you. Oh, we can't wield a hatchet. My parents gave me a hatchet when I was like 12 for Yule.
0: Nice. After two weeks at trial hearing testimony and argument, the jury deliberated and found Lizzie Borden not guilty on all counts. Oh my god. The most famous murderess who officially didn't do it. Lizzie Borden took some time to recuperate in Newport, Rhode Island after being released from prison. She did her best to live life normally, but the stigma and infamy followed her everywhere. No one knows exactly what went into this decision, but Emma and Lizzie did eventually buy a home on the hill at number 7 French Street, which they named Maplecroft.
1: That's charming.
0: It was in this house in Maplecroft that now Lizbeth Borden lived the rest of her days. She changed her name to Lizbeth after the murders and sure. everything. Yeah. She wanted to separate herself a little bit the re- murder house remained in the sister's possession until they both died and passed it on
1: who got it
0: i believe a cousin a blood bloodborden
1: oh well of course i yes. mean we dealt with the non blood Borden.
0: exactly so she spent her years doing charity work and making sure her name wasn't attached to it to be sure the charity didn't get any outrage for associating with her
1: okay that's nice because
0: okay. you know cancel culture not new she knew she was aware
1: Calling it cancel culture when people were like, maybe if a murder, a known murderess (laughs) is attached to it, we should question the charity accepting the help. Like, that's fair.
0: I mean, yeah. (laughs) But, like, to immediately denounce a charity because they accepted money from someone is... Yeah. Fuck you. Like, all they did was accept money. You don't know if it's blood money.
1: I mean, it's bloody money.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Children from the area would often sing the dog roll outside her home even knocking on her door for her to answer so they could sing it to her face. Oh, my God. Emma and Lisbeth had a falling out about a decade after the trial and never spoke again. Emma and Lisbeth. Oh, no. Lisbeth died June 1st, 1927, and is buried in Oak Grove Cemetery in Fall River. Her grave site and the grave sites of Andrew and Abby Borden are still a tourist attraction. Not on purpose. People just go. The murder house has been long running as a haunted bed and breakfast. Last year, it was put up for sale because the pandemic made it impossible for the family to keep it running properly. And it sold for $2 million and will remain a haunted bed and breakfast. Isn't that nice? Yeah, that's nice. So there are a lot of theories out there about John Morse, Lizzie's uncle, being involved in the murders. John was the one who had shown up to the Borden home the night of August 3rd, unannounced without so much as a toothbrush, with him intending to stay the night. Because of that, it's believed that he was part of the plan to kill the Bordens. There are many theories that he worked with Lizzie either by showing up to make it so the guest room would have to be freshened in the morning, and even some that said he hired the killer and Lizzie let them in. Though these are really fun theories, I haven't seen anything backing them up beyond some writers' books That relied on a lot of newspapers with misinformation. And John Morse's alibi for the day of the murders fully checks out. So it would have to be they hired another person type theory, which...
1: I mean, it could also be, like, he was unwittingly part of it. Like, Lizzie was like, come stay!
0: It could be that as well.
1: Yeah, like, just because he was involved doesn't mean that he knew he was involved.
0: Yeah, so... Although he could have easily been part of the murders in some way, even plotting with Lizzie. There's just no proof. Lizzie didn't write in her journal, August 1st, 1892, plotted to murder my parents with Uncle John. Going to be a great time, lol. Why the fuck
1: is she a valley girl, Melody? Um, Come here. Why is she a valley girl? She's from New England. She's I'm a lost.
0: That's the joke. <laughs> <laughs> that's the joke, Ellen. I love you so much. So I do have one last thing to note. I couldn't find anywhere in this episode to fit this fact about the Vorden family, but I wanted to include it because I found it really interesting. Yes. It's something I found out while researching um, a little bit more for this episode. The Borden's had a family coat of arms oh featuring a lion wielding a battle axe
1: oh, yes!
0: and the Latin phrase Palma Virtuti. Palma virtuti literally translates to palm for rich virtue. To put that in context, in Roman culture, the palm was a symbol for virtue. Gladiators who won their matches were rewarded with a palm front and, you know, typically a warm meal. So translating that phrase further into English would make it victory belongs to virtue or victory is awarded to virtue. And I find that being the family motto kind of ironic because in this case, I do think Victory was awarded to the one with evil intent, and that, my friends, (laughs) is the Borton murders, part two. Oh my god,
1: a fucking lion with a battle axe, Melody.
0: It's fantastic. I'll be posting a picture of it to the Instagram. It is. Love it. It's a great coat of arms. It's fantastic.
1: Also, the fact that they had a coat of arms. Fuck you.
0: Oh yeah. Um, (laughs) Full wasp. Full wasp.
1: Oh God's bless. I shouldn't. I shouldn't clap. But, like,
0: that oh, yeah. was
1: a great time. I'm so glad I know this now. Now I'm going to go, like, actually do research because I've been holding back for a while.
0: Yeah. Ellen's been very good.
1: I've been, I've been an excellent co-host. I have done nothing, and that's my job.
0: Yeah. Her <laughs> job is literally to show up. Hell yeah. <laughs> like,
1: I, help, I help construct the fort, sort of. Oh, yeah, that too. Yeah. But, I like...
0: The <laughs> <laughs> I contribute. Like, the entire concept of this was, like, Ellen has a busy life, so all she'll need to do is show up. Hell yeah. Melody's
1: excellent. (laughs) She's like, just show up. I'll tell you some creepy stuff. It'll be great.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Basically, I'm monetizing what I already do with our lives with more research. Hell yeah. And
1: research is fun.
0: It is. Yeah. It gives me an excuse to dive deep into these things.
1: It's Melody at 2 a.m., deep in the Wikipedia page, finding all of the articles that link to it. (laughs) Yes. Just going through every single source.
0: Because it's 3 a.m. And I'm researching murder on my own. <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God.
1: I, it is very sad that Emma and her had a falling out. Like, that breaks my fucking heart. They're sisters.
0: Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's because I don't have the best relationship with mine. But <laughs>
1: I was blessed with an amazing, an amazing sibling. Yes, you were. I loved it.
0: She is, or they—they they are also my sibling who I've actually not met in person yet. It's fine. We'll but they are definitely also my little sister. So. Yes. yes. <laughs> I gotta move it into the Fuller family.
1: Yes. We got her, folks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Well, we thank you so so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the burden mortars.
1: The burden the mortars. The burden mortars. It was a mortar. The
0: burden murders. <laughs> 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 Suddenly I'm becoming Swedish chef. Um, now I just want to watch the Muppet Show. Uh, so, we are... Thank you so much for listening to The Boarded Murders, parts one and two. And thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like to help improve sound quality and the software that we use for editing and things, become a patron, please. Uh, we have different tiers different um rewards that you can get for being a patron and we're pretty excited to uh engage with you guys yeah
1: where can where can they engage with us
0: melody so other engagement that you don't have to pay for is can be found on instagram i
1: just want to say i don't have time for that shit
0: (laughs) but you can also find us at on Instagram and Twitter at It's a Scary Life. We also have a page on Facebook It's a Scary Life. And um, I mean, I have my Instagram, Macabra Melody. Yes, you can always hook up, chat with me on there. And I hope you guys have a wonderful day. I yeah. hope you make good choices. Please don't kill people. Please don't. If you feel the urge to hurt yourself, other people, animals, no matter what the thought is, Please, please get some help.
1: Yeah, go talk to a therapist if yeah. y- that's a, an available
0: option. Yeah. yeah. So we love you and get therapy, guys. Bye. Hell yeah. Bye. <laughs>